Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, just up to my neck today, 2 Peter chapter 3, reading all the divergent views on the scripture, apostates like Bart Erdman, reading uh, cult groups, reading about uh, the Mormons and Islam and people's view of scripture. And I, I think to myself, do you, do you know how much is writing on this? I mean, if this is not true, uh, you know, we can, we can throw our hats with some other book, you know, like the Muslims and the Mormons have, or you can forget it all and become a happy agnostic, as Bart Erdman says he's become. But if it's true, then it's a big, big deal. Is it not? I mean, it is a big deal. Look at verse number 10. Here's what the, we presume the scriptures say, right? This is God's word to us. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. For the day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you've already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever or not, right? I mean, that's either, that's either it or it's just the views of man who sat around on a rock and decided to, uh, I don't know, in some perverted moment, decided to write a, uh, a set of letters to lead us down a path that goes nowhere. I mean, it's a big deal. We got to decide. And I'm so sick and tired of running into folks that waste their time at church and they really don't have this issue settled in their hearts. It's like they don't know. Well, and I hope it's, well, it's important, but I don't want to take it so seriously. Did I share that with you last week, or was it Sunday, or who knows where it was, where the criticism against Compass Bible Church people was that you take the Bible too seriously? <laughs> Did I share that with you already? How serious should we take it? I mean, if it's not true, then let's run the other way. But if it's true, I mean, that's, that's cataclysmic. That's big stuff. So I hope that this series is helping to meet a need. We need to not only know what we believe, we need to know why we believe it. Either that or we need to stop pretending to believe it. Let's not be ignorant. Because, as verse 17 says... You got to be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. 
We've got to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who spoke of these things as though they were true, and he said every jot, every seraph, every yoth is going to be completed. Not a single bit of it will pass away. That was his view on it. So it's time for us to take this seriously. All right, without looking, let's get through our, our words here. It's going to get from God's mind to the prophet's mind. That's called, wow, so weak for, for such a strong church. Revelation. It's going to get from the mind of the prophet onto a piece of paper, and God is going to be involved in that. It's called, but we prefer the word God breathed, right? Thank you, NIV and ESV, for that. Once we have that on several documents, we've got to somehow figure out and recognize whether that document is a part of God's God-breathed library. We call that step canonicity. Very good. And then we've got that document, and we're certain that it is a part of God's inspired library, and it's got to make its way to the 21st century. We call that transmission. Got a little weaker there. We've got all the documents now, thousands of them laid out on the proverbial table. We've got to now get those into our critical copies, we call them, of the, yes, right, textual chrism of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament. Then from the Hebrew Old Testament to the Greek New Testament, we've got to get that into our language if we want to read it, if that's the only language that we're fluent in, and we call that translation. Very good. All right, we're on page number 21, number five, attested by evidence. We've got some things, none of which perhaps by themselves, with the exception maybe of letter E, stand as a complete case. But together, it is pretty impressive. So let us go through these one at a time. Number one, and we'll do them quickly, the inspired library is attested to by perfect agreement perfect agreement. If you just consider the diversity of the folks involved in writing this, the tools that God used, the chisels in our analogy, you got a doctor, a physician like Luke, you've got an, a, a young fisherman who was probably a teenager when called, and a young guy used of God to write a section of the New Testament, a rising Jewish scholar the Apostle Paul, or to the Old Testament, a shepherd turned king, or a, someone like Ezekiel who's serving in the royal courts, or someone like Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel who's outside the royal courts in the country, and a guy like Daniel who's serving in the royal courts. You've got an incredible diversity of tools. If this was a human product, we would be shocked to find a uh, consistency. But over that 1,500 years, the 40 authors, the three languages, all of that time we find an amazing amount of unity and continuity. As a matter of fact, that's what we go to school to, uh, to, to marvel at and to systematize. I mean, in all my years of undergraduate and graduate and postgraduate school, taking the Bible statements in all 66 books and arranging them under any given subject or topic, I mean, it is, it is an amazing thing to see how documents that are 1,500 years apart will harmonize on whatever the subject is. It's called systematic theology. Uh, it's, it's an amazing attestation to God's involvement. 
at least it's one piece of the pie. Secondly, let's move on quickly to incredible survival, the incredible survival of the text. You do need to recognize that any book that has become as popular as this one, written beginning, you know, 3,500 years ago in a desert outside of Egypt, uh, it's an amazing thing to have these words be so powerful and influential uh, and to be preserved the way that they are, certainly because it's been the target of persecution. I mean, I think of Diocletian and the communist countries and Voltaire. That, that's a fantastic story. Have I told that story before? Voltaire said, within a hundred years, he said, the Bible will be no more. This was on the heels of the Enlightenment, of course, remember from Western Civ classes. And here is this guy making grand statements about the Bible uh, being something of the past. A uh, hundred years from the time that he wrote that, his house where he wrote that in became a part of the International Bible Society in his country uh, and was producing and distributing Bibles. Um, it, it's just amazing. I think Diocletian is a classic example of a tyrant who tried to outlaw and ban and burn all the copies of the scriptures. It's just amazing how this book has come down to us with more manuscripts, as we'll see, than any other document from antiquity. Certainly thrives under criticism. Uh, the uh, popular books notwithstanding, it's interesting, I was reading Bart Erdman again today. If you don't know who that is, he was a uh, uh, well-educated textual critic who was under the tutelage of guys like Bruce Metzger who um, tried to work with all the variant readings of the Old Testament. We're going to get into all that under the section of textual criticism and has now been on all the talk shows uh, with his uh, misquoting Jesus book, if you, some of you have been exposed to that. Uh, it's amazing when you read his statements in his interviews. Uh, just reading again his book this afternoon, uh, he says, the thing that led me to agnosticism really wasn't any problems I had with the Bible. Well, that's interesting. You wouldn't know that from the books that he writes with such vitriol against the scriptures. Uh, he said, it was really the problems with the suffering uh, in the world. And I, I think every time I hear of an apostate who leaves uh, whatever seeming mainstream Christianity to go and then become a critic of, of God and theology and theism in general, uh, look closely at, at where they're coming from. Uh, you find these guys often in places that are trying to prop up and sustain a man-centered gospel. And when you have a man-centered gospel where pastors get up week after week and tell you how everything's rosy and fine and God loves you, just wants your life better, and we all should be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and they take scripture and quote cherry-picked verses to try and convince people that, you know, if you just got God, everything will be right with the world. If you grow up in that setting or you worship in that setting, and then you have the pains of life. And you see the problems of the world because you become well-traveled or you encounter problems like Bart did with his marriage and it falls apart and he's faced with divorce. All of a sudden now, you don't know where to go because you've bought so much hook, line, and sinker of the pop theology of our day that is a modern creation, by the way, in the church. It's not what we've been preaching, certainly not what they're preaching in the underground church in China. It's not what they've been preaching in countries that are having their heads chopped off for believing in Christ. They don't preach this American wealth gospel that we have. But you find that these folks really, even though they'll point to the Bible as the problem, so much of what they're fleeing from is bad theology to start with. 
and their own personal pains or their own personal, as he says, I'm a happy agnostic now. I've never been happier than before. He says, and I love the, the, the oxymoron of this. He says, I feel now like I know, what do he say? That I have more truth than ever before. And the point is, he's calling, in the same paragraph, calls himself an agnostic. You know what agnostic means, right? That you don't know, right? <laughs> I don't know, and I'm so glad I don't know, and I feel like I got more truth now than ever, because I don't know. I mean, that's his philosophical position. And I think to myself, when you're running, and, and, and Bart, I don't know him personally, but there's so many like him that I do know. When you're running from the moral problems of your life, because the hand and authority of God's word is on you. There's nothing you want more than to get out from underneath that. And people will do and say just about anything to flee the accountability of the straightforward teaching and words of, of, of the scriptures. But I think to myself, under all of that criticism, like his mentor, Bruce Metzger, and others that he sat alongside of in these departments, I mean, it's funny how they are not like, oh, Bart, thanks so much for figuring it out for us. We, forget it all. You're right. We were wrong. The criticism does not hold up under scrutiny. And that's why we have continual responses to this that I think points to the fingerprint of God, that you have an intelligent response to the supposed criticism of the day. One passage that's worth jotting down would be Acts chapter 5, which I think is a great paradigm for us in all of this. In verses 33... Acts 5.33, let's just turn there real quick through 39. And again, this is a little bit different context, but it speaks to the issue of truth because that's what the early apostles were preaching. They were preaching the truth. And here's what Gamaliel said. Do you remember this little encounter? Let's start in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Hey, can we talk? Get them out of here for a minute. Verse 35. Then he addressed the men. Then he addressed them. Hey, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men because some time ago, Thutis appeared and claimed to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all of his followers dispersed and it, and it, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas... The Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, he says, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, it's not an argument in and of itself that would be convincing, because there are some errors that seem to be always around. But if it is the truth, and whatever the truth is, and if God is for the truth, that would be something you would expect to succeed and to continue in perpetual success, at least in some corner of the globe, until his return. And that's the thing about the Bible that is forever true. As Zoroastrianism rise and fall with all the cultic groups, the Janetists, and you can name them all, you, wouldn't even, you don't even recognize the names because they're dead cult groups, and I'm struggling to come up with more of them because they're gone. And today we've got our JWs and all the rest, but they rise and they fall. But there's been one thing that's, that stood firm. The monotheistic messianic hope of Judaism that found its fulfillment in Christianity and continues on now all these years later. I mean, we're 4,000 years into this from Abraham to today. 
I mean, that's, as you add it to the rest, I think a very important thing to, to recognize, that this book is bearing that particular piece of the pie, that mark of authenticity. Thirdly, massively influential. It's not only survived, it's been amazingly influential. It is, of course, the most popular book in the world. It is the number one bestseller, as we like to always say. We put that on Orange County buses. Did you ever see the buses going through South Orange County? Number one bestseller in the world. Picture the Bible. Get into it. Compass Bible Church. I just want people to remember, as we design that little campaign, this is the most read book in the entire globe. Yeah, you can say Islam and the Quran, it's the fastest growing religion of the day, in part because they're having 8 to 12 children, and Christians are generally having, what, 1.8 around the world, and some countries, you know, barely having one kid per couple. But the point is, Christianity is still the dominant, uh, at least theological position. Let's not argue and, and get into genuine conversions, but the point is, this book is the most popular book in the world. This is the Encyclopedia Britannica, by the way. This is not a Christian book. You have those? Now we all have it digitally. But it says this, in the context is speaking of a, the fact that the Bible is an oriental book, and by that it's an eastern book, it's a, it's a near eastern book. And it says the Bible is the most valuable, uh, I'm sorry, the most available, familiar, and dependable source and arbiter of intellectual, moral, and spiritual ideals. This is just the, its point is, it's just amazing how influential this book is that came out of the ancient Near East and has found its way into the inscriptions on the walls of the most powerful countries of the world. That's an amazing thing. And I think, well, that's a God thing. That's my point. The amazing survival, the amazing influence, and the harmony found within it certainly changes history. Scripture has changed history, and for all the negative press on a lot of the spots in history, don't get me started on all of that, but there is so much good. People, you know, we, we love to bash Christianity for the Crusades or the, you know, the Puritans or what have you, which if you understood those in context, you'll find how slanted history is against the truth of those chapters of history. But it's amazing how when you look around the world, uh, you know, there's the Presbyterian Hospital and the Methodist Medical Center and and the in Texas the Baptist uh, you know hospital it's just amazing what influence Christianity has had for the good of the world and history not to mention the United States certainly as it was founded to provide freedom from a corrupted and corrupting national church 200 years ago and I know it's a subjective thing, but it certainly changes lives, and I'm assuming we could pass the microphone tonight, and this book has changed lives in this room where a lot of other things that you may have toyed around with didn't do what the living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword book has done. United Bible Society, by the way, just talking about influence, reports that over 2,287 different languages the Bible has been translated into at least sections like New Testaments or what have you. 2,287, there are only 195 countries in the world. You do understand what a big thing is. Find me another book that's in 2,287 languages in the world. Not to mention you could reconstruct the text of the Bible with quotes at the local library. I mean, you find this book influencing literature, classic texts, what have you. 
was reading a book, David uh, Daniel's book, he's at Yale University, or at least his books are always published through Yale University Press, called The Construction of Nationhood. Uh, he's got sections in there that trace the impact of the Bible on music, literature, politics, and art, and he just goes through it all. We don't even realize how much our language, our music, our lit, our politics, and art have been massively influenced by a book that a lot of Christians haven't even read from cover to cover. Uh, the amazing impact of the teaching of God's Word. Fifth, or fourth, what is that? One, two, three, four. D, it came with a supernatural bang. That's not the most eloquent way to say that. But uh, it came with the imprimatur of a God who breaks the rules. He can break the rules that he made. And if you haven't heard that sermon, they're all available online. And if you haven't been to the Focal Point website lately, you need to go there. Uh, we've totally redesigned that. They worked for m many months to put out a brand new website. It's so much easier to navigate. There's a sermon that's buried in there somewhere called When God Breaks the Rules That He Made. And if you have not listened to that message, I find it's a kind of message that for some reason is not being preached these days. But uh, you need to realize the connection, and I think I've pointed out here, that of the uh, 86 GT1s, were you around for this sermon way back when? God things, right? Things we say are God things. More than half of them are providential. They don't break the rules of, of nature. 87 of them, or 86 of them, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, actually suspend natural law, right? When you create Adam... And I took creation week when I did the count, and I did all those creation miracles as one. Creation is one. When you create a man out of the dirt, that's a miracle. See, when you turn water into wine, that's a GT1. God suspends natural law. When Jesus walks on water, when Elijah, uh, Elisha raises someone from the dead, those are, those are creative miracles, GT1s. 77 of the 86 are associated with the coming of the law, the writing of the prophets, or the coming of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. And that uh, is a pretty telling st statistic. There's 192 miracles in the Bible by my count. 86 of them are GT1s. Nine are pre-Mosaic. 77, though, then fall into the groups. 10, Moses and Joshua. 21, Elijah and Elisha in the time of the prophets. 46, Christ and the apostles. Which is interesting how they ramped up. 10, 21, and 46, all with the coming of written revelation. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, good passage that you've probably already written down. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. That's how he attests to written revelation. That's how we know that a book is God-breathed. I mean, that's one of the ways we know. It comes with a supernatural bang. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The things that mark an apostle, they're bringing revelation to people. He says, they're signs, wonders, and miracles. They were done among you with great perseverance. Miracles are not, we got into this a little bit a couple weeks ago. You know, just because God backs himself into the corner with your health, right? Uh, that's not what they're for. They were used strategically in three groups. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Christ and the apostles to authenticate the coming of written scripture. And that's another sermon, but you can hear me wax on for an hour about that in that sermon for free. 
at fpr.info or focalpointradio.org or focalpointministries.org. Still trying to buy that focalpoint.org, but those guys will not release that to us. Stinkers. (laughs) So pray for that because it's a mouthful. All right. Hasten on. It came with exacting predictions. There's a sermon if you are on that website, if you want to hear more on this. I didn't plan to quote this. Let's see if I can, but um, did I write them down? If you look just through that on predictive prophecy, you'll find a number of sermons that deal with that issue. But here's my point, and we ought to turn to these real quick. They're all in the same neighborhood. Isaiah, let's start in Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, 42, and 44. These are all great passages just to remind us that what God is telling us is that when he brings truth to us, he doesn't just say, believe it, and your belly will feel different if it's true. He says, believe it because I've shown it to be from God, from me, because I'm the only one who can, in this instance, tell the future. Watch the, uh, the History Channel on Notre Dame last week. What a joke that is. I mean, seriously, come on. I mean, Gene Dixon and Notre Dame are not the apostles and the prophets, not even close. I mean, the exacting predictive prophecies in the Bible are something altogether different. And God challenges these idol worshipers, and he says this, Isaiah 41, 21, present your case says the Lord. Set forth your argument, Argument says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols and tell us what's going to happen. I love that. Tell us. Tell us what the former things were, as if you could. I mean, you have to guess at the past. I mean, just look at modern science trying to guess at the past, and it changes every three or five years. He says, uh, but if you know all that, great. We can consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Yeah, that's even harder. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. And why would God hold that up if he himself didn't do it? And of course he does. He is the one that throughout the scripture presents us with predictions that are exact. Like that a A Messiah who would be the king, the son of David, would be born in Bethlehem. That's like trying to figure out where, you know, the greatest uh, leader of the world is going to be born and only picking obscure little towns. I mean, this is an amazing thing, Micah 5, 2. That's just one example. Isaiah 42, is that what I said? 42, 21? I meant 45, 21, I think. See if 4521 doesn't start with the word declare. So you wrote down 42 because I typed in 42, but that's wrong. 4121 and 4221. Is that right? Is that wrong? 45, I was right. Okay. I was right that I was wrong. 4521. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Which, by the way, in the margin you should have down Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's one passage where he predicted it. Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. 
back to 44, across the page, next page, previous page, Isaiah 44, 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm sorry, this is what the Lord says, the Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. I did, not did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. There is, not, there is, is there any God besides me? No. There's no other rock. I know not one. God is making specific predictions throughout the scriptures. Messianic prophecies like the ones I've listed there for you, Judah, Jesse's tree, Davidic king, Bethlehem, virgin birth, prophecies regarding the nation, 70-year exile, Jeremiah 29, Isaiah 44, Cyrus's role and Cyrus's decree, Daniel 9, the timing of the coming of Messiah down to the, to the very year that it would take place, Leviticus 26, captivity and the return predicted, All right, those are all there for you. We can look at those another time. Messianic prophecies, general prophecies. I just threw this one down. You don't need to turn there, but Deuteronomy 18, 19. It's a helpful passage. If anyone doesn't listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I'll call myself, I'll call him rather to an account. But the prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I haven't commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, he must be put to death. You may say to yourself, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord something that does not take place or come true, then that message has not been spoken by the Lord. And that prophet has spoken presumptuously, like Gene Dixon and Notre Dame. Don't be afraid of them. Even though they put spooky candles and dark pictures as they recreate what a cool mystic he is. I'm not afraid of all the weird things he said because most of what he said never happened. All right. Just one quote for you here that may be helpful. Wilbur Smith, in his incomparable book, it's the only volume ever produced by a man or a group of men in which there is to be found a large body of prophecies relating to individual nations, to Israel, to all the peoples of the earth, to certain cities to the one coming who was to be the Messiah. The ancient world has had many different devices for determining the future, known as divination, but not in the entire gamut of Greek and Latin literature, even though they use the word prophet or prophecy, can we find any real specific prophecy of a great historic event to come in the distant future, nor any prophecy of a savior to arise in the human race. Mohammedanism cannot point Islam, to any prophecies of the coming of Muhammad uttered hundreds of years before his birth. Neither can the founders of any cult in this country rightly identify any ancient text specifically foretelling their appearance. That, to me, certainly with everything else, puts this whole issue to rest. And we've spoken a lot more about pre predictive prophecy that you can look up on our website. Let's hasten on. We've got to hurry. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Step three, canonicity. Let's talk about that a little bit. Definition. Canon, not canon. That guy, the guys there around the canon, that's three ends. We're talking about the canon with two ends, and that's different. It's a transliterated word, right? Kanach, kanach. You know how they always feel that it's like they're about to spit? 
the, he, the Hebrews, kanach, the kanach. That is a word in Hebrew that means a, it's used in two ways in the Hebrew Old Testament. One is a reed that grows along a, the bank of a river. And they're kind of like if we were in the, you know, in Japan or China, you know, it would be the, the straightest thing that grows. So it was then plucked out and then it was made into their ruler, ruler. And the word it's translated into, it's the same word, kanach. It's, it's the rod. It's also translated rod. Okay. It's not the shebet. That's a different kind of rod. Those of you that have been around that sermon, not the shebet. It's a different word. It's the word kanach. And kanach is the word for a measuring stick. Okay? It, it's used in a passive way, the reeds growing, and then in an active way, like in Ezekiel, when they measured the temple, they measured it with a kanach, a, a, a measuring stick, which was made from the reeds. That was, uh, I said uh, Ezekiel, but that is not Ezekiel. That's Isaiah, I'm sorry, 19.6. No, it was. I'm sorry. Ezekiel 40, verse 7. Thank you. I wrote down Isaiah 19.6 because that's when it's used in an a agricultural sense, the reeds withering, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40, portico, one reed deep. Okay, transliterated. It was then transliterated, not translated. You know the difference, right? Translated, you actually get a different word. Transliterated, it comes into another language and they just kind of spell it the same way and you have to take the meaning from the other language. Kanach became kanon, kanon in Greek. So kanach, the rod, the measuring rod, is used now four or five times in the Greek New Testament, kanon. And the kanon is used in the second sense in Hebrew, which is something you measure with. And it's described or translated as a, as a, 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 a rule or a ruler. Classic uh, passage would be, uh, which I wrote down there for you, is uh, Galatians 6, 16. Galatians 6, 16, I have no idea why I wrote that in capital uh, Greek letters, but I did. Come on, W is a long O, right? You frat boys know that? Or astronomers or mathematicians, right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's who had to learn the Greek alphabet. All right, uh, yeah, Galatians 6, 16. We won't turn there, but I'll read it for you at least. It says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, this canon, even to the Israel of God. Also used in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 13 through 16. It's used three times there. Measure to measure. All right. So what's our definition? Well, it's used in two ways, and here's both parts of it in this little box you can write down. When we say canon with two ends, not three, what we mean is something that is used to measure. Something that is used to measure. And this is kind of a uh, interesting reciprocating thought. But if you have something that's measured, you go to Staples and you buy a ruler, you want to make sure that before you use it to measure, you want to make sure it's first been measured, right? <laughs> oh, I would hope so. And I hope whatever is measured from was measured. The thing that you use to measure has to first be measured. And when we say the word canon, that's what we're talking about in two different applications. Let me show you, and I'll just take this right from Geisler and Nick's book, but it's used in the passive sense in this way. When we talk about the word canonicity, what we mean by that is it's the standard by which a writing was judged. 
a standard by which a writing was judged to be God-breathed, to be inspired. That's how we use it. Put a star by that definition because the passive sense of the word canon, which has just been transliterated from kanon, which is transliterated from kanach, is all meaning something that is employed in our thinking to measure whether or not a book is God-breathed. That's the definition. But if you hang around Bible people very long, you'll start to see them use this in an active sense. And that what they mean by it is, the Bible is the canon by which everything else is to be judged. People talk about things like, they'll say, well, this verse is the clearest verse in the whole canon of Scripture, right? Or, or, or even being in canonical order, books in canonical order. We're using that in a sense in which we're talking about the Scripture, which is the rule of everything. And, and canon is, is, is equated with Bible in the usage that sometimes people toss around. That's not the meaning we're using here. Although, interestingly enough, the Bible, because it was written over 1,500 years, becomes the canon to the canon. That's one of the ways we begin to identify it. In other words, would we know if the book of Romans is biblical, is, is God-breathed, well, it should measure up to the Pentateuch, right? Because if it is all from God, there should be consistency. More on that in a minute. Common mistake. And if you don't learn anything else tonight, don't you love it when the pastor says, if you don't learn anything else tonight, this is the one thing you need to learn. Please don't let me hear you say this. Because everyone loves to say this, and it's, it's wrong. I was reading a book that a pastor friend of mine recommended, and they said this. And I said, what is that? God, a junk. And sometimes I like the little short paperback books because sometimes they summarize really well, and that's hard to do, summarize complex information in simple form. And I was reading this book this afternoon, and I was like, ah! Because it, it made this common mistake. And, it's, it, it, and to me, it's a humongous, terrible mistake. And you'll see why here in a minute. The common mistake is to say things like this. The church determines the canon. And I mean that in an active sense. What they decide is what becomes canonical. They determine it. Another way you hear it, say it said is with the word authorized. Christians authorized the 66 books of the Bible. Whenever you see someone talking about canonicity in this way, that it is something that the church does, you are inevitably going to lead yourself down a path that will look a lot like a, like a lot of modern religions that just aren't so. One of our staffers sent me a quote from the LDS encyclopedia today on how the Mormons decide what's canonical. And it sounds a lot like the catechism of the Catholic Church which says the same thing, which is the church determines the canon. The Christians authorize the 66 books if they're the Christians in the right church that you know, are under the right authority. It's the authority of the church. It is as the Catholics say, and it is wrong, that the church is the mother of the canon. Protestants say, no, 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 no. See, the canon is the mother of the church. That's a big difference. Let's put it this way. An important distinction to be made is we don't determine, let me replace those words, we discover. We don't determine what's biblical. We discover what's biblical. 
we don't get anything else, get that tonight about canonicity. We don't authorize, we recognize, and that's hugely different. If we authorize, then we got to figure out who's going to do that. If we determine, then we're going to decide, well, who is the ecclesiastical authority that's going to tell us that? And there'll be plenty of people lined up to say, well, that's us. That's our church. That's our guy with the funny hat. That's our big, you know, uh, uh, hierarchy and structure. There's going to be people that are going to say, I have the right to do that. My question is, how do you have the right to do that? We don't determine it. We don't authorize it. We discover it and we recognize it. A couple quotes that are worth quoting. Inspiration is the means by which, I don't even think there's space for that on the next page, so... Anywhere you want to put this. And both of these quotes are short. They're worth writing down. Inspiration is the means by which the Bible received its authority. If it's God-breathed, it's authoritative. The question isn't, are people going to sit around in a room like the Jesus Seminar? Are you guys familiar with the Jesus Seminar? John Cross and all those guys? They literally sat around in a room you got to read about this. It's fabulous. Robert Funk and the rest of these guys, they sat around in a room with chips of different colors, like poker night at the seminary. And they had a basket there, and they basically decided as they would read parts of the Gospels, that's where they started, and they would vote on whether or not they felt it was authentic and would be then the authorized text. And they came out with it. You can go to my library and check out the book, um, I don't, can't believe I just said that. You can come and see it. Um, they've created a, a, a Bible that's in four different colors. And the four different colors tell you that this is really authorized. This is not, uh, but came close. This one, you know, no one really voted for that one. And this is absurd. No way this is Bible. That, that's what they did. And that's modern theological fair these days. Inspiration, though, is the means by which the Bible received its authority. Canonization is the process by which the Bible received its final acceptance. In other words, we do sit back and say, wow, that bears the mark of inspiration. And the church has been through the process of determining their logical standard of what would be expected if it were God-breathed, and then they accepted those texts because they bore the marks of inspiration. Inspiration is what gives it authority, not canonization. Canonization is just how we accept the text, recognize it. Or as F.F. Bruce said, this one's really short, both logically and historically, authority precedes canonicity. That's a good way to put it for a guy who's probably written some of the best stuff on canonicity. Both logically and historically, authority precedes canonicity. Okay? I was hoping this was on page two and three, but let me give you three books. <laughs> of the three, one of them is on the list. Sorry. There's so much that could be said. I'm going to give you a quick summary here on the next page. But if you want to read more, here's an old book. I think this is in the 50s or 60s, and he's updated it since, and that's the one I put on the reading list. But if you want to go to the reading list and maybe jot this one down next to F.F. F. Bruce's name, the next one there is the canon of Scripture. The one that preceded it was called The Books and the Parchment. Sometimes when you read a book that's 50 years old, 
it's sometimes easier to, to get through because it's not always interacting with the modern attacks on canonicity. So you may prefer F.F. Bruce, The Books and the Parchments. His new book is the canon of Scripture, or newer book. That was put out in 88 by InterVarsity. So those two books are a good pair to have. Then and on the next page, you've got Metzger's name, Bruce Metzger. And though I gave you two of his books, Introduction to the Apocrypha, which is great. We'll get to that next week, I hope. But this one here, I didn't put on the list, and that is the canon of the New Testament. Its origin, development, and significance by Bruce Metzger. That would be a good one to jot down next to, next to his name. So if you want something that's simpler, go to the books and the parchments. If you want to tackle some of the latest questions about canonicity, F.F. Bruce's 1988 book, and if you want something from Metzger who dealt, deals a lot with um, well the same issues, but from Metzger's perspective, which he's um, familiar with just about every ancient manuscript in existence, uh, that book might be helpful for you, for you readers. If you're not a reader, let me summarize these books for you. Ready? Reasonable standards. This is page 23 now. First reasonable standard would be authority. Authority. Made these all A's, hoping these would be easy to remember. The question to ask is this, does it convey divine authority? Does it convey divine authority? Sometimes it's explicit, sometimes it's implicit. But does it bear that sense and that statement or inference that this is a book from God, a writing from God? Does it convey divine authority? Now, passages like this make it clear. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares. Jeremiah 1.15. This is what Yahweh says. Ezekiel 3.11. This is what the Lord Yahweh says. Hosea 2.21. Yahweh declares. When you see those statements, it's clear that these, these books are claiming divine authority. Others are implicit. But we're looking for something that gives us a sense that it's saying this is a God book. Now, you could write a book that says it's from God. I understand that. I doubt you can put all the marks of inspiration on that book that we talked about in the last section, but you can try. And if you're wrong, according to Scripture, you're supposed to be stoned to death. Um, well, let's not talk about that. Authorship. Authorship. I see a typo coming up here. It's not autor authority. Authority. That's how your toddler would say it. But is there prophetic or apostolic authority? Is there apostolic or prophetic authority? Sometimes it's direct. Uh, Galatians 1. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm not sent by men or from man. I, I am, I'm sent by Christ Jesus. I didn't get my revelation from someone else. I didn't, this isn't secondhand. This is firsthand. Is there prophetic or apostolic authority? Thirdly, accuracy. Question to ask. Is there factual or doctrinal veracity? Is it truthful? Is it consistent? I mean, the Bible is claiming con continually that it's true. Think of John 17, 17. We've looked at Psalm 19, Psalm 119. But when Jesus says, sanctify them, set them apart by truth, your word is truth. I think statements like that are so huge. And the point is that this book should be 
truth. And truth, by definition, is a correspondence with reality. And if it corresponds with reality, it's not going to be filled with, inerrant, uh, with uh, errors, factual or doctrinal errors. I tried to state it positively. Could ask the question, are there factual or doctrinal errors? And if so, it's not accurate. By the way, when we, I hate to jump ahead, but these will come back. We will look at things like uh, in the Apocrypha, the additions to uh, Esther, good example. Why uh, was Haman mad? Okay, well, the Apocrypha, which we reject, and more on that later, it doesn't agree with the Esther we have in the Hebrew canon. We have the Greek Esther, and it doesn't agree. It's not accurate. It's, they can't be reconciled. This is not a perspective issue on, you know, some, some thing that happened in, in Christ's life. This is why was there a problem in Esther's uh, uh, the whole situation with Mordecai and Haman? Different answer. Reject it then. It doesn't bear factual veracity. More on that when we talk about the, the uh, Apocrypha. Spiritual authenticity question to ask, does it spiritually nourish God's people? Does it spiritually nourish God's people? Not the fringe player, and I get people all the time coming up to me saying, you know, I, 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 this book is really great. It's really ministered to me. I'm talking about the whole of God's people. Do the discerning people, do the, do the rank and file people, do the simple people, do the old people, the experienced people, do they look at that text and see God working through that text to nourish his people? I think of passages, if you want to jot down some verses, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 and 14, 12 through 14. In fact, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. The point is, he equates the scripture to food, which is all throughout the Bible. If you live on milk, you're an infant. If you're mature, you're going to eat the solid food. The point is, it's, it's like food to your spiritual life. Or like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Verse 2 in particular. Like newborn babies, you ought to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. It, it, it is something, and it says, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Or how about Hebrews 4.12? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, if it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, it penetrates the dividing soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. People Magazine doesn't. See, there, there's a difference. There should be a difference between how God's word affects real Christians. E, acceptance. Acceptance. Question to ask, was it initially received by God's people? Was it initially received by God's people? There were a handful of books, and we'll look at those, that were disputed. But they were disputed after they were accepted. And the church said, well, there are some things there we don't understand and we're not sure, but we've looked at it closer, and the whole of God's people say we do receive it. But you'll find that all the 66 books that we're going to well, we won't look at them all, but we'll look at the ones that have been disputed and we'll recognize they were embraced initially by God's people. Passages that are helpful, I suppose, we'll look more at this when we get into some examples. But even in Exodus, when it says, he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And he responded, we'll do everything the Lord has said. There was an acceptance and an understanding that those books early on were the word of God. 
They read the book and they said, we'll do what God said. The inference is that what God said was contained in the book of the covenant. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. It's an interesting parallel between God's spoken authoritative directives and his written document to the Corinthians. All right. Hustling on here to get to a sidebar that is important. So I'm going to fly through page 24. And then we'll, we'll pick up the pieces next week on some of this. Let's talk about the pseudopigrapha. Pseudopigrapha. The pseudopigrapha. You see two words there, right? Pseudo. That's easy, right? What does pseudo mean? False. Pigment, pigment is what? It's in all kinds of things. Pigment's in ink, pigment's in your skin, something you can write with, right? Pseudopigraphus literally means false writings, the false writings. Pseudopigrapha, false writings. Now, a <laughs> lot more on this, but let me just summarize and then try and explain. When I say pseudopigrapha, I'm saying these were books that were rejected by everyone, quote unquote. Even though today, people may be saying, hey, these are the real deal. We've been sold a bill of goods on your other books. More on that in a minute. But we can say, as we look through the pseudopigrapha, that these books were by and large rejected by the church, out of pocket from the beginning. Most of them were penned between 200 B.C. and 300. Between 200 and 300. Now, I used to say 200 to 200 because those are the classical pseudopigraphal books. But I've had to extend that at least 100 years because of all the rage of the last 10 years. When people have, you know, Book of Enoch and the, all, the Gospel of Philip and all these. And now they say, well, these have got to be, you know, the, the, the true scoop on Christ. And a lot of those bled into the 3rd and 4th centuries. So more on that in a minute. Some claim authority and some don't. Some claim authority and some don't. The names by themselves often claim authority. Gospel of Barnabas, for instance. Well, if it's Barnabas, traveling partner of Paul, maybe that's like Luke or Mark. Maybe that's, maybe that's got apostolic authority in it. They contain a variety of errors. Some aren't even trying to be right. I've, over the years, I've read a lot. I can't say I've read every single pseudopigraphal book, but I've read a lot of pseudopigraphal books. And I'm telling you, they're not even trying, half of them. They're not even trying. I mean, they are, have I said this before? They are the pot-smoking, you know, dope-influenced writers who are sitting around, you know, tripping out and writing fanciful books. They're absolutely bizarre. And if you want to read some, I'll give you some titles here in a minute where you can just have at it for the next year. They enjoyed only limited popularity. When I say they were rejected by everyone, they were enjoyed by some. And by that, I mean there were offshoot groups. Many of them were associated with classic break-off groups and cult groups of the early church. Now, you want to go at this, I probably put these in the bibliography, 
I should check, so you can just star them. Charlesworth, yes, I did give you that. Two volumes, and these are huge. There's probably, I would guess, 3,000 pages of pseudepigraphal writings in these books, just that first set alone. Now, it's called the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, and I'm so glad for that. Matter of fact, most of what you see there on the rest of the page, it's a partial list, and there's so many of them. But the book of Jubilees, or the book of Adam and Eve, or the martyrdom of Isaiah, or First Enoch, or the Assumption of Moses, those are books that you can find in the Pseudepigrapha, in, in, in this large set. And, and a lot of our staff guys own this set. Maybe they lend theirs out. You can sit in the hallway and look at mine. I used to lend out books, and I'd never see them again. Just so many books have been lost in the congregational cloud. And I didn't want to start issuing library cards or anything, so I... You, you, whatever. Now, this is confusing. Don't be confused by it, though. This is pseudopigrapha. But it's contained in a two-volume set called the New Testament Apocrypha. It is not the Apocrypha. And I, I hate the fact that they named it this. But they try to explain why they named this, this set, the Apocrypha, in the intro, which was a really sad explanation in many ways, because it immediately says, well, it's not the Apocrypha like you know the Apocrypha. It's a different kind of Apocrypha that's more like the Pseudopigrapha. <laughs> I wish they wouldn't have called it that. This is not the classic Apocrypha. Certainly, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you're not going to find the books that you're used to, the 14 to 16 books, you're not going to find those in this set. This is full of the fanciful, many of them, the Gnostic writings. You'll find a lot of the Nag Hammadi library in here, if that rings a bell. But if you want a book, instead of, that's all source material. You can read all the source material there. If you want a book to help you sort it out, and this is a decent book, Craig Evans' book, it's called The Non-Canonical Writings and New Testament Interpretation. And that's not a hard read, and it's not very long, and let's see if I put it on there. Yes, on page two. Did I put the other one on there? Yes, New Testament Apocrypha. Wilhelm Schnellmacher. They're all from Germany. What's with that? All right. Okay, now, here's my sidebar. Are you ready? So find a place if you're going to take notes probably across from page 24. We'll get into more of these. If you want to learn about 3rd Maccabees or whatever, which, by the way, 3rd and 4th Maccabees, you might want to star, theirs, star those because if you get a modern apocrypha, I'm sorry, yeah, a modern apocrypha, not a pseudepigrapha, sometimes they include 2nd and 3rd uh, and 4th Maccabees. You'll always find 1st and 2nd Maccabees. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you know those books. 3rd and 4th Maccabees, sometimes they connect to the Apocrypha. So those are kind of playing both, both groups. More on that next time. Let's talk about this. The reason this is important is because of this guy, Danny. Let's talk about Danny for a little while. The reason you can go to Barnes & Noble tonight and find a bookshelf full of pseudopigraphal writings, and you can go and check it out. You won't find the big volumes there probably, but you'll find individual books. The book of Enoch, you know, the gospel of Philip is because there's an appetite in our current day that was created 
by Dan Brown. And the Da Vinci Code, I just want to tell you, while he claimed incessantly it's fiction, here's what he claimed about what was in the books. All descriptions, this is in the pre-prologue, okay? In the section titled Fact, all descriptions of documents, among other things, in this novel are accurate. Clearly it's fiction, but he says, all descriptions of documents in this novel are accurate. You guys read the Da Vinci Code, right? You know about it. You saw the movie, right? Okay? No? Don't waste your time. <laughs> On Dan Brown's website, he called it a theological thriller, which I thought was interesting. Absolutely all, in the Today Show interview, I saw it, absolutely all of the historical claims, he said, are accurate. All the historical claims I'm making about biblical text are accurate. Back cover of the book, the initial one that I have, the hardback, read the book and be enlightened. Okay? So this isn't read the book and be entertained. I mean, that he said incessantly, well, I hope you're entertained, but I'm going to tell you something about the Bible that you don't know. That's what he continued to say. Okay? A couple things on this. What did they say? Well, here's what they said. Here's the essence of the book and the movie. The original followers of Jesus, called the Gnostics, we're going to talk about those now, said that Jesus was a married with children, goddess-worshipping, 100% human rabbi. Uh, that's funny, but it, that ain't funny. Because that's what they... That is what Dan Brown will tell you is the truth. That the original followers of Christ, including the teaching of Christ, is that Christ was married, worshipped feminism, not just feminism, but feminine deity, a goddess, and never claimed to be divine, was 100% human, and everyone knew it, and that's what he taught. Okay? Now, how, why does that have any bearing on this part of the sermon? Because when you read the book, listen to the movie, uh, see the movie, or you talk to people who have been influenced at your office by this, they say the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, all these Gnostic writings that have forever been categorized as pseudopigraphal writings, false writings rejected by almost everybody, only enjoyed limited involvement by some weird guy smoking pot on the side of the road. That's it. Now they say, these you can trust. And that book, you can't trust. And here's why. Okay? Give you some quotes first. The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown. The Bible, page 231, hardback, my edition. As we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. That's the claim, and every follower of Dan Brown and everyone who takes the book seriously, because he said you can take it seriously, and every claim about the historical document is absolutely fact. He said, your Bible came from Constantine in the 4th century. Okay? Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible. This is Constantine's Bible, which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits, like Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. In other words... Constantine was the one who assembled this book. You want to talk about canonicity? Dan Brown and all the folks that took the book seriously will tell you that all of this was the work of Constantine and his crew. And remember, all descriptions of documents in this novel are true. That's what he claimed on the talk shows and everything else. Now, 
timelines. We need some of this. What's the deal with Constantine? Here's the claim of the book. Okay, Jesus was doing his ministry in 30 to 33 AD, all of that. I'm all into that. That's fine. Dan Brown says it's great. Now, what came at the time and soon after the time of Christ was the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Adeline, the Gospel of Thomas, all the Gnostic writings, they grew up and gave us a picture of Christ. Then, nasty Constantine came along in 325. And what, what Constantine did is he saw all the teaching about Christ and he said, I'm going to destroy all that teaching about Christ. I'm going to outlaw it all. I'm going to destroy it. And I'm going to present a new Bible, your Bible, the Bible that made it, right? The Bible that you have. And he says, if you read the Gnostic Gospels that were the true picture of Christ, you see he's a human rabbi, married, he's a feminist at heart, he worships a goddess, and he never claimed to be divine and wasn't dying for anybody's sins. That's not the whole point. And all you got to do is read the, read the real Gospels, and they'll tell you that. Now, after Constantine, you get the phony Jesus. And the phony Jesus is a savior from heaven who was God in human form and was the very essence of God. And he came in a God sacrifice, human sacrifice, to die for sins. That was Constantine's thing. Okay? The claim, Constantine. Who, who is this guy? Page 231, Da Vinci Code. The Bible, as we know today, collated by the pagan Roman, Roman emperor Constantine the Great. I thought Constantine was a Christian, Sophie said. Okay, answer. Hardly, T-Bing. Remember they went to T-Bing and T-Bing had all the answers? He was a lifelong pagan. A, now catch this. A lifelong pagan who was baptized on his deathbed. And the only reason those church guys baptized him is because he was too weak to protest. All historical descriptions, remember, are true. That's what Dan Brown claimed. And everybody who lapped it up looking for reason not to like your Bible and stop jamming your Christianity down my throat, didn't you know that the canonicity of the text was all his thing? And he, by the way, was a lifelong pagan. That's what the book claimed. And I'm telling you, a large growing segment of our society now believes it. Now, just to get some perspective, Constantine came from a long line of anti-Christian predecessors. Nero, alive during the day of the New Testament. Uh, Domitian. Marcus Aurelius, you know him. Diocletian, he was one of the worst. All of these men preceded Constantine and were, in fact, pagans who hated Christianity, who persecuted Christians, who killed and martyred Christians, and who outlined in many, outlawed, in many cases, the scriptures. Okay? Then came Constantine. Constantine in 313 was outnumbered at a battle for the Milvian Bridge. This is one of the famous paintings of him fighting. He claims that at that time, he turned to this Christ that he had heard so much about. And Christ, through a long, you know, convoluted story about him having this vision that God was going to give him victory... Under the banner of Christ, he fought this. A lot like Martin Luther, if you'll get me out of this, this storm, I'll worship you. That kind of crisis moment, the foxhole moment, he claims that he was converted to Christianity. And all you got to do is just type Google Milvian Bridge, and you will have the historic account of Constantine's conversion. Now, if that's all we have, I'd say, well, who knows? A lot of people claim to be Christians. A lot of foxhole conversions that don't stick. Here's some things about his testimony. In 313, he claims to be converted to Christ. Now, here's his track record. I'm not saying the guy's perfect. But in 313, in a thing called the Edict of Milan, he made Christianity legal. It was 
something that was illegal in the Roman Empire because of the persecution of the Roman emperors. In 315, perhaps you've seen the Cairo sign here. He coined, or he minted rather, coins that bore the marks of, of the Cairo, which is not Egyptian city, Cairo. The Cairo, which is like a XP, XP, this is not <laughs> XP. Uh, may it rest in peace, XP. Uh, that was a software joke. The Cairo, if, if, uh, if you were to see Christ's name in Greek, the first two letters are Cairo. And the ancient way to abbreviate a word was not just with the first letter, it was with the first two letters. That's how they abbreviated things. Cairo was an abbreviation for Christ. Christos, that's his name in Greek. And Cairo are the first two letters. That was the sign. And he put it on the coins. Okay, That's what the pagan did. And I'm just saying. He now legalizes Christianity. He prints coins with Christ's initials on it. He then, in 318, this is just highlights of his reign, he instituted laws regarding slaves, the poor, tax relief, and church property. And if you study Constantine's track record of laws and you look to see how pre-emperors in Rome had dominated and how they oppressed their people, and then how Constantine took scriptural principles and began to put them into law. And 318 was a watershed year for all the Christian principled laws being instituted in Rome. In 321, Sunday became a public holiday. Got Sunday off, and people were happy about that. Constantine, some of his own words... Here's his own his writings. For while the people of God, whose fellow servant I am, are thus divided amongst themselves by an unreasonable and pernicious spirit of contention, how is it possible that I shall be able to maintain tranquility of mind? Yeah, that's a pretty big statement for the big rough, you know, lifelong pagan who's only under duress, baptized on his deathbed. I'm a fellow servant of the people of God. I can't stand it when they fight with each other. I mean, that sounds like a, like a, you know, a teenage girl in the youth group, right? I mean, this is at least some soft-hearted testimony from Constantine. Now, the Council of Nicaea, and that's what half of the whole Da Vinci Code is about, and what the people at work who are the pseudo-intellectuals that tell you that the Bible's junk, they all want to talk about the Council of Nicaea, because that's where they say canonicity took place. In one fell swoop, your 66-book Bible became reality because of Constantine. Okay, let's talk about the, the Council of, of Nicaea. It happened in 325. Now, you saw all the things before 325, and I just highlighted a few of them. Constantine was doing some things that looked pretty Christian. Looked like that conversion in the foxhole was maybe genuine. Constantine wanted unity in his kingdom. He didn't like all the contention which was focused on one theological topic in the 4th century. Okay? And I'll expose that in a second. But you need to know that the contention in the church had nothing to do with the books of the Bible. Nothing. It had nothing to do with the books of the Bible. Okay. This is the Da Vinci Code on the council, and the Council of Nicaea. By order of the pagan emperor, seeking to consolidate power and, main, and, and to masculinize, that's a new coined word in the Da Vinci Code, the world, right? 
He called this council to stamp out the real story of Jesus, a married, goddess-worshipping, 100% human rabbi named Jesus. Okay? He wanted the real story gone, and he wanted to invent the Son of God myth. Okay? And he wanted to create a new Bible that would go with his new doctrines. That's the claim of the Da Vinci Code, which is also the claim of the pseudo-intellectual you work with. That's what they believe about canonicity. Now, here's some facts about the Council of Nicaea. There was a troublemaking pastor who, kind of like Pelagius, was not a good-looking guy. <laughs> Were you there Sunday? Yeah. Arius of Alexandria in Egypt wore a funny hat and preached some things that weren't good. What did he preach? He preached that Jesus was God, but his divinity was similar to the Father, and it was not the same as the Father. It wasn't the same. He had a divinity and he was divine, but he was not divine like God the Father was divine. It was a different class two divinity. That's what it was. Oh, there was a time, and this was the clincher that made him a heretic to the rest of the church, when Jesus did not exist. He was not eternally existing. He was not the same yesterday today, and forever. He was not God for all time, and he didn't exist at some point in the past. He was begotten, and by that he meant not monogenes, not only unique son, he was the son that had a beginning. That's his take on the word monogenes, which is translated only begotten in John 3.16. The council met not to settle if Jesus is God, but how Jesus is God, because Arius said Jesus is God. No doubt about it. That's just, I don't think he's the way God, you guys are saying he's God. The council concluded that Arius' view was unbiblical. No discussion, by the way, about the books of the Bible. No discussion, by the way, about the books of the Bible. Of the approximately 300 pastors that attended the Council of Nicaea, only two of them voted for Arius' similar divinity to the Father and not exact divinity of the Father. Only two. Look it up. Only two pastors out of what they say is approximately 300 delegates to the Council of Nicaea. You got that? Da Vinci Code's claim. This is the narration, which, by the way, all historical claims are true and accurate. Sophie is talking about the Council of Nicaea with the guru in the book, page 233. Hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? Is that what you're saying? Teaving. A relatively close vote at that. Teaving at it. 300 to 2, I don't think that's close. Nonetheless, establishing Christ's divinity was critical to the further unification of the Roman Empire. Didn't mean to put Roman in small r there. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's not true. Now, I want to talk about the pre-post-Nicene change regarding Christ. There is none. That's my contention. Some examples. Ignatius, 107. Okay? The Bible written in the first century, done probably by the mid-90s. Okay? 107, Ignatius writes, Jesus Christ was truly crucified and died in the sight of beings in heaven and earth and the underworld, who was also truly raised from the dead. At least he's claiming this Christ raised from the dead, which, by the way, according to the Da Vinci Code, no one believed that before Constantine wanted to try to consolidate power. Christ was not a resurrected Christ. Profession of Smyrna, 180. 
long before the Council of Nicaea. We know in truth the Son, suffering as he suffered, dying as he died, and risen on the third day, and abiding at the right hand of the Father, and coming to judge the living and the dead. That was part of the confession or the profession of Smyrna. Well, he did die, according to the church, and he did rise from the dead, and he was coming, and he was seated at the right hand of the Father, all of which, Dan Brown says, was created in the fourth century. The Der Blaise Confession of 200. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in his only begotten, his monogenes Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are statements that, according to Dan Brown, would never have been spoken before 235, or 325, rather. The Creed of Hippolytus, 215. Jesus, the Son of God, who was begotten by the Holy Spirit from the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose on the third day, all of which was apparently a creation, this divine rising from the dead Messiah by Constantine. Pre and post Nicene change of Christ, well, there was none because Nicaea simply put this into a form that sounded much more theological, but it was the same truth right out of the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten by the Father and only begotten, as only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, from God of God, this is everywhere on the internet, just look up Nicene Creed, light from light, true God from true God, it's not different or similar, it's the same, begotten, not created, he wasn't a time when he didn't exist, of all the same essence as the Father through whom all things came into being. You read the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy when a bunch of pastors like MacArthur and J.I. Packer and Schaefer got together. They make things a little more wordy, right? But that's what the church had been saying the whole time because, by the way, my contention is, because we're out of time and we'll get to this next time, the Bible was not only not created at the 4th Century Council of Nicaea, but it had been around the whole time. And we have documents to, to prove that. I got to give you a couple more. We got out early last time, get out late this time. <laughs> Irenaeus, okay? Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, we could go on and on and on. All of that before the Council of Nicaea. As a matter of fact, go to someone else's library or mine and sit in the hallway <laughs> and, and read the 10 volume anti Nicene. Christian writings. That means before the Council of Nicaea. I got 10 volumes on my shelf. And you probably, you got access to it on the internet. This is public domain stuff now. And you can read about what the church thought of Christ. We have 10 volumes of writing before the Council of Nicaea from pastors and church leaders. Okay? After Nicaea, I've got 26 volumes on my shelf. Here's 14 of them. Uh, I got 28 volumes, actually. Uh, the post-Nicaean Christian writings. And guess what? Constantine didn't change a thing. He called a council that clarified that Arius was a heretic, but the picture of Christ in the anti-Nicene Christian writings and the post-Nicene writings, guess what? Same Christ. You know why? Because they were all reading the same book, the New Testament, that wasn't created or consolidated or canonized by Constantine. It's the same book they'd been reading from the beginning. And I'll try to prove that to you next week, okay?